Uh, Aaron was not going to let me name this sermon Cannibals for Christ. So we'll just call it, we'll just call it the offensiveness of the gospel. Um, so, 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 so this sermon, I want to focus on the three, the three most controversial things that Jesus says in this sermon, and perhaps three of the big reasons why people reject him both then and now. And those three things are first, the offense of election, second, the offense of unlikeness, and third, the offense of intimacy. The offense of election, the offense of unlikeness, and the offense of intimacy. First, the offense of election. So when, when Jesus turns to see the crowd following him, he knows why they're there. He says so in verse 26. He says, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Said another way, Jesus is saying that all of the miracles that he does are meant to point to his identity, but many of those surrounding him only saw that their physical needs were met and they were content with that. It's good to have your physical needs met. But that's not all that Jesus comes for. So he draws them to a space of deeper longing in the next verse. And he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, you probably think that when we, that when, that when we talk about election that we're talking about us. We're talking about whether or not we're elect, whether or not we're chosen. That, after all, is most people's anxiety the thing that wraps people up in knots, the thing that particularly makes people, makes people hate Calvin because they think that the doctrine of election is distasteful. But that's actually a secondary point. Our election is secondary. The first thing for us all to understand is that the chosen one, the elect one, is first and foremost Jesus Christ, the word of God. Because that's what he's telling this crowd. He's saying, God chose me. That's why you ought to follow me. I'm the one on whom the Father has put the stamp of approval. You will only find life if you follow me, Christ says. And so then the people ask a reasonable question, yet one that still misunderstands Christ. It says, what, what do we need to do to fulfill God's requirements? And Jesus' answer is simple in verse 29. The work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. And this is perhaps the deepest question that we ask of the Lord. What do you, what do you want from us? And Jesus' answer is simple. Trust. Wholehearted trust. He doesn't really want anything else. The, the reason why we give, the reason why we serve the poor, the reason why we lift up the marginalized, the reason why we ought to obey the Lord's commands is, well, we ought to trust our Savior. Or as he says, believe in him. But we'll get to the specifics of what that means in a bit, because after this profound, simple, yet difficult statement, the crowd reveals that its priorities are exactly where Jesus said that they were. Instead of saying, oh, that's it? Cool. We believe. What else do you want us to do? They say, okay, what are you going to do to prove it? I mean, Moses gave the people manna, for, manna like from, from heaven. Like, what you, what you got? And Jesus, in peak Jesus fashion, says, Oh, I'm not going to do anything to prove it. Also, Moses hasn't given you anything. God, God my father does. Don't, don't look back then. Look, look right in front of you for the bread that comes from heaven. It's a person. To which the crowd, whose spirit and mind has been clouded, they respond, what, what, where? Give us this bread. We don't know. Where, where is it? Now, you might think it's mean for me to say that about the crowd, but it's not. 
I'm repeating Christ's words. This is an unbelieving crowd. Take a look at his response in verses 35 to 40. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. You hear those echoes of John 3 and other other places in John. And I will raise him up at the last day. The doctrine of election is not about pride. It's not about you being better than everyone around you because you believe. It's not about you being blessed because you believe. It's about humility. Jesus is going to say in a few verses that no one can come to him unless the Father draws or drags him or her. Our base level, where we start off, is death because of our sin. Apart from Christ, we have no life. Our sin separates us from our Lord, and we don't want to be near him. As a matter of fact, it would be painful. It would be painful for us to be in the presence of a holy God as an unrepentant people. And so then what the Lord does is he pairs, he pairs this, work of, this work of drawing with the irresistibility of his word. He's going to draw people to belief by his word. Now, I know when we, when we, when we hear that, when we, when we think about the word of God, you might first think of the scriptures. I want, you to first, I want you to first think of, when you hear the word, first think of Christ. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says. Not might come to me. Not will if they want to. Not will if they work hard enough. Just, just will. And he doesn't say, well, you know, if they, if they turn out to not be as great as we thought they were, we can just, we just cut them loose. Whoever comes to Christ, he will never drive away. And not only will he never drive them away, but he doubles down in verse 39, and he says that the will of God is that Jesus loses none of all that the Father has given him. He won't drive you away, and he won't let you slip through his fingers. Those are the, those are the prongs of election that he, that he irresistibly chooses, and he draws you, and once you're in, you can't get out. Now, that's offensive because of what we think free will is. We think that if it's, if it's not our idea, if it doesn't depend on us, then is it, is it really ours? But do we want that? Do we, do we want our salvation to be founded on our strength and our resolve? Whether or not we hold on hard enough? Are we willing to take that gamble? Well, the Lord loves us too much to let us take that gamble. He knows that our, our clouded minds won't choose life, and so, so he ushers us into it, and he doesn't let us go. It deeply offends our pride. But if you let it, dear brother and sister, it will comfort your soul. Now, I've got to name the elephant, elephant in the room for many, and that's, it's, it's most of Reformed evangelicalism as we know it and as we may have experienced it. You may have, you may have experienced the use of this doctrine to make you more anxious. It may have been used to set some people above others 
It's been used historically this way. It allowed, it allowed the colonizing settlers of this country to claim that they were God's chosen people and that the indigenous inhabitants were Canaanites meant only to be slaughtered for their land. I could go on about that, but I won't. I, I, I want us to do this, though. I want us, I want us to try to disentangle ourselves from, from what we think this doctrine is about and instead to pay attention to the words of Jesus. I'll quote my, uh, one of my favorite theologians on this point. He said, Let it therefore be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded by the word of God, that is, for us to say anything about this outside of the scripture, is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. And here's the, here's the, here's the line. I, I, lo- I love this line. Let us not be ashamed to be ignorant in a matter in which ignorance is learning. Let us not be ashamed to be ignorant in a matter in which ignorance is learning. It's John Calvin, y'all. Jesus is emphasizing two things in this text. His prerogative and his power. That he has the right to choose and he has the power and the will to keep you. That's what we need to know. And that's what he's saying. So, so there's a... There's a there, There's a temptation. There's a temptation to get lost in the labyrinth of trying to understand God's choosing. But the Lord calls us to rest in it. The reason that he gives is his love. And and it's difficult for 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 us to let the Lord give us his reasons for doing the things that he does. But that's what he tells us. He tells us that he chose Christ, and if you've been united to Christ by faith, then your election is just as sure and the Lord will raise you up on the last day. Resurrection is coming. Election is offensive at first, but it's comforting in the end. Now, I know you may have questions. I do, I do too. Some of, those, some of those answers the Lord gives, some of them he doesn't. But here, now, know this. This crowd didn't know Jesus. They saw him, but they didn't know him. But you can. And this, is, this invitation is real. This is an invitation for you to know this God, the creator of the universe, who reaches out to you. But the context is you, 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 you got to know whose house this is. It's the Lord's. So that's, 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 that's point one, the, the, the offensiveness of election. But what really grinds people's gears is verse 41. The Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? We know this guy. It's, it's Joseph's boy. What, what do you mean came down from heaven? Now, this is something that, that may hit home. You may not, you may not think it, but can, consider what this crowd is really saying. Hey, hey, we can touch him. We can see him. We, we know his family. There's no way this dude is anything more than human, claiming to be bread from heaven. It's, it's much more comforting for us to just think that Jesus is just like us, that he suffered as one of us, that he struggled just like we do. And that's actually precisely what Hebrews says. It says, in, in Hebrews 2.15, it says that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. The author also says that since the, children, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. And that's comforting, right? Jesus is just like you. No, that's not comforting. If, if you're getting jumped, 
You don't want somebody your size to jump in and say, I, I, I got you. Like, it's not helpful. You need somebody, you need somebody stronger. But, uh, but okay, maybe, maybe some of you are not, you're not getting jumped on a regular basis. So, that's, so, 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 so here's, here, here may be something a little, bit, a little bit closer to home. Some of you may be, may, may, may be overwhelmed. We're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, 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 and masking protocols are changing. Your, your kids might be out of control. You, you might be dealing with anxiety and depression. Uh, they're, they're, over, the, over the course of the past few years, We've seen, we've seen, we've seen just, uh, racial oppression has gotten, has gotten more public. You're, de- you're dealing with all of these things and the enemy might be assaulting you in all kinds of ways with all kinds of lies that keep you constantly off balance. Do you want somebody to come alongside you and just say, ah, oh, that's, that's, that's rough. I mean, I see it. It's rough. I mean, that has its place. When we, think of, when we think of Job in the midst of his suffering, his friends keep trying to give him answers. And he's like, like I, just, I, I just need you to sit with me. Like that's, that's, something, that we, that's something that we need, but, that's, but that's, not, that's not what we really want. We want somebody to set us free. When, when you're sick, you don't want a doctor to just come in and say, oh, I know exactly how you feel, and then walk out. When you're, when you're trapped in a destructive spiral, you don't want somebody to just come alongside you and self-destruct with you. Sympathy and solidarity are good, 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 good things, but they only go so far. Brothers and sisters, I, some, of my favorite, some of my favorite theologians are black liberation, the, are, are, are black, are black liberation theologians and, and womanist theologians. And one of the things that we, learn, that we learn from them is this emphasis on Christ's solidarity with us in his suffering. But it's not, Christ, it's not his solidarity that saves us. It's who he is that saves us. Because those verses in Hebrews don't end where I stopped them. Christ has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, Jesus is both God and man, and because he is such, he can be with you and for you. And, and not just for you, as in cheering for you on the sidelines, like Baylor fans at the Sugar Bowl, Sikkim Bears, for you, for you, as in he leaps onto the field, picks up your, le- your limp and weak body, and barrels through the demonic defense to the end zone. See, Jesus is like you, yes, but he can save you because he's not like you. That's the offense of unlikeness. Because Jesus became like you and will be like you until the end of time, but he wasn't always, and that's what's comforting. Brothers and sisters, we don't gather every Sunday just to hang out. Anybody can do that. Churches churches don't gather just as places of relief or just as centers of social organization. They are those things, but plenty of nonprofits can do that better than churches do. No, brothers and sisters, we gather every week to hear from the Lord, to drink from the well of his spirit, to sing to our Lord, to confess our sin, to hear our pardon at his hands, and to partake of the Lord's Supper. Things that we can't do anywhere else or with any other people. We gather to encounter God together in community because that's what the ministry of Christ among us is. Not just to remember some dude who lived 2,000 years ago, but to experience his presence through his body. Because he is, yes, human, 
but he is also and was first God. He's like us, yes, but he is also very much unlike us. And that's uncomfortable at first, maybe even offensive, but comforting. And Jesus saying that he's the bread from heaven, as he does in this passage, it bothers folks because he's saying, my origin is not your origin. Because he's saying, as he's going to say later in, in the Gospel of John, that he's eternal. And that's, that's weird at best, blasphemous at worst. But what if he's right? The offense of unlikeness. Now, the third thing that gets folks upset, particularly Jesus' audience, is the whole eating flesh and drinking blood thing. I'm going to call that the, uh, the offense of intimacy. So eating and, drinking, eating and drinking Christ's flesh and blood, it's a little hard to swallow. That's my slim joke for the day. This is... This is the, this is the saying that really gets folks to leave Jesus. And it's the one that at first appears to be the hardest to understand. I want us to, I want us to hear verses 50 to 59. And I'm going to read it how the, how the Greek appears. And there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's one word that's going to change halfway through that's going to make it even more uncomfortable. Take a listen. So, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever chews my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the, at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever chews my flesh... And drinks my blood, remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who chews on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but, the, but he who chews this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So at first, at first, in the, in the Greek, at first he just uses the word for eat, phago. And then halfway through, he makes it even more visceral and switches the, switches the verb to trugo, which means chew. If you want to be a Christian, you have to chew Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. And don't sanitize it in your mind like I know you are. I know you're doing it right now. It, it, just, it just means believe. Jesus doesn't really mean to eat him and drink. Like, that's, that's weird. That's ridiculous. That's probably what the crowd thought. Their first thought was, that's ridiculous. Well, that was probably Abraham's thought when God told him to leave Ur and go to, and go to a land he didn't know. That's probably Abraham's thought when, when God told him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It was probably Moses' thought when God sent him to Pharaoh to free the Israelites from slavery. It was probably Hosea's thought when God told him, go take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. It was probably Isaiah's thought when God told him to preach a message that no one would listen to. Dear brothers and sisters, our God is constantly in the business of asking us to do ridiculous things. This is no different. The Son of God is telling you and me to chew his flesh and drink his blood. 
Now, outsiders, especially in the first few centuries of the church, they were even familiar with this teaching, and they would call early Christians cannibals because they, didn't, they had no idea what was going on in this, in, in this text. So what is going on? Yes, by chew my flesh and drink my blood, he does mean believe. But, but, the belief that he's pointing to, like when, when, we, when, we, think, when we think of the word belief, it, it, it's, it, it's, kind of, uh, it's, kind, it's kind of tame for, for most of us. But, but, but what he's saying is that the intimacy that you are called to with the creator of the universe is such that he's, he's to course through your veins as though you're digesting him. What, what he's saying is that your relationship with him is as essential to your life, no, even more essential to your life than eating and drinking. What he's saying is that there is no life apart from a fruitful relationship with the Lord, and he's calling you, yes, you, into that life. Jesus will say that the Father has life in himself, so does the Son, so does the Spirit, and the Son, can be, and, and, and the Son has been called to extend that life to whomever he wishes. And so if you chew on him daily, every hour, that's how you find life. It's, it's kind of funny that both, both Jesus and Paul have a lot to say about anxiety, but it's mostly through commands, and, that, and the command is, is consistent. Don't do it. Don't worry. Why? Like, why, 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 is that, why is that the response? It's because the Christian life is fundamentally a life of intimacy with God, and intimacy is built on trust. And so the question, when you find a seemingly ridiculous command in Scripture, the question when the Scriptures convict you of a secret sin, the question when your brother or sister in Christ lovingly leans into your life, the question is this, do I trust the Lord? Do I trust him to take care of me if I'm generous with my finances like he calls me to be? Do I trust him in a life of singleness to provide for me the community that I desperately need? Does he, does he trust me in a life of marriage when I still struggle with loneliness? Do, do I trust him when I go through this surgery? Do I trust him when I make this move? Do I trust him with my kids who are growing up, who may be almost out of the house, who may not be under my supervision, who may be in my house, and I just can't, I just don't know what to do with them? Do I trust him every day of my life when I don't know how many breaths I have left? The Lord's response? Chew my flesh and drink my blood. Because my flesh is true. It's true food, and my blood is true drink. That intimacy that you seek can only be fulfilled by the Lord. But it can only, but it can only do that if you, if you trust him. And, and that's, what the, that's what the life of sanctification is. It's coming to trust him more and more and coming to obey him more and more. Trusting him with those, those dark recesses of your mind that you don't trust anybody with. But that's what mystical union with Christ is. It's an intimacy that no other human relationship can compare to. And it's the intimacy that all of those close human relationships are meant to point to. And here's the offense of it. Jesus says these things in the synagogue. <laughs> that's the last verse. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum in the center of regular worship, in, the, in sacred spaces, Jesus comes in and says loudly, hey, this is all about me. Is your relationship with the Lord like that? That he can enter into your quiet, sacred spaces and reorient you? That he can speak to you about your career, 
about your living situation, about the particulars of your life, and say, hey, 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 this is, this is about me. You only have it because of me. Now commit it to me. Your time. It's the Lord's. Try telling him that in prayer and see where he takes you. Your kids, they're the Lord's. Try telling him that in prayer and see where he takes you. That, that hits us right in the, right in the gut because we, cause, cause we've all got things that we desperately want to hold on to because we think that they're food and drink. We think they sustain us. We think we, think we need them. It's a new year, brothers and sisters. It's 2022. For many, as arbitrary as it is, it's a new beginning. I pray that it's, that it's a year that begins with a commitment to intimacy with the Lord. Because, because whether you reach new, new heights or new depths and valleys deeper than you've ever experienced, you must know that the Lord has promised to be with you through it. Because he's the one who sustains you. He's the one that you need. And, 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 and I really want us, I really want us to learn this without the, Lord ha- without the Lord having to take things away from us to force us into that recognition. Because he'll do that. Like, the Lord, wa- the, it, the Lord wants you. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to get you. And so if that means taking away the things that you build your life on, he'll do it to bring you to himself. I don't want that for you. I, want, I, I prefer the easy way. But the Lord can do it the hard way. Best to commit things to him now with an open hand. The Lord of the universe calls out to you, brothers and sisters. The Lord who took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died to free you from your sin. Let that, let that sink in, that he, he died a profoundly shameful death, death on a cross, to save you to forgive you, to wash you clean, to bring you to himself, to bring a people to himself, and to redeem the world order. He gave his flesh for the life of the world, as he says in John 6. And on the third day, on the third day, he got up. And he has promised that all those who are united to him are going to get up too. No matter what death you may face, no matter what suffering you face, whatever broken relationships you've had or will have, the Lord has promised that if you abide in him and he in you, then he'll raise you up. Push through the offense of the gospel and rest in the comfort of his embrace, dear sister. Push through the offense of the gospel and rest in the comfort of his embrace, Dear brother, I'll say this over and over and over again. The Lord has called you into a relationship with himself that is closer than anything that you could ever imagine. So dig in. Dig into his word. Dig into prayer. Dig into the lives of your brothers and sisters. Dig dig into the service and love of the marginalized, and you will find that the Father, Son of God, and Spirit of God are walking right alongside you. You will find that when you chew on the Lord's flesh and drink his blood, you can weather any storm because that's what a vital, life-giving union with Christ looks like. I pray pray that we would each come to know this Jesus, come to be indwelt by this spirit, and come to live a life in service 
of Christ's Father. Because when we're united with, when we, when, when we're united with Christ, his Father becomes our Father too. Let's pray.